I I was just kidding, but I was gonna, I was going to tell your mother that I really was just going to watch the game because the answer to all your questions is Jesus. Well, that's good. You remember you remember from December then. You I, haven't forgotten I, at all. Just kidding, but I was gonna, I was going to tell your mother that I really yeah. was just going to watch. Yeah. Sorry, that was that was YouTube feeding back. Oh, okay. I was going to say. You're talking twice. There's two. Sounded a lot like him. YouTube's on a loop. It's like like a thirty second delay. Yeah. Looks like Linda's on there. Okay. Looks like it. Peter. I'm branding the podcast. See, oh, uh, now we have swag on the, on the podcast. Yes, we do have. Look at that. We have stickers. We have, oh, I'm sorry, decals. <laughs> decals. I got 50 of them for like $9 or something. Yeah. It was like ridiculously cheap. I was like, oh, I got an email. We can we can give those out as prizes for something. Yes. Well, any donors this year are getting them in their there you go end of year thank you letter, which will be going Donate out shortly. Donate production. You get a decal. <laughs> a custom made decal. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> they're expensive. Don't listen to Peter. <laughs> well, generally they're expensive. I I got the good you deal. Have. So. Now, see, a real marketer would say I paid $9 for that. That's and right. I one to believe they were $9 per. Give it away. Yeah, there you go. It's a deal. Yeah. What a value. Give $1,000, you get a decal. You get a $9 right. decal. <laughs> An exclusive. That's right. Custom made. They are actually custom made. We had someone draw our, our logo for us. Yep. So they are actually um one of a kind indeed well except for all those name there but one of a kind within the group of lots of them yeah <laughs> it's a lot of a million that's right <laughs> one of a kind within millions in a minute. <clears throat> okay so it is seven-ish and we have a lot of people joining us, which is great. I was worried that it was just going to be me because everyone's out of the practice from last year. But I'm glad you all found your way back. So that's good. Um, I'm out of practice as far as where I'm supposed to stand and how the computer works. I think I grew. That's not me, by the way. Okay, so tonight we are going to pick up our study on Galatians, um, and we are in chapter 2, and although we got part of the way, or even most of the way through chapter 2, we're going to kind of pick up a little bit before we left off to get a running start at it, because I'm assuming that we might have forgotten some of the things we learned um, in 2020. So, yeah, so... Um, if everyone who isn't speaking mutes their mics, that helps a little bit, but if you can't, that's okay too. And we will get started. I don't really have any major announcements to make other than it's good to see you all back. And I know some of us have health difficulties in our lives right now. Some of the people even in this, in this group and even in this class right now. So if you could just uh, keep each other in your prayers, that would be a, a wonderful thing and, and everybody would appreciate that. So Oh, I will record this just in case someone wants to listen as a podcast. So let's pray, and then we'll get started on Galatians chapter 2. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that as the calendar changes to a new, a new year, we move forward knowing that you are the God who never changes, that you are the God who loves, the God who forgives, and the God who gives us life. So even as this year approaches and we, know, we don't know what lies ahead with 
COVID and, and other things that are going on, we know that you are the God who blesses each and every day so that we can wake up and know that this is the day that you have made. And so teach us to rejoice and to be glad in this day for it is a day to celebrate your love for us and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And now in your grace, you have called us again together around your word. And so we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would guide us that our time in this word might be spent as you desire, that our hearts and our eyes and our minds might be turned to our Savior, Jesus Christ, to repent of our sins and there to find forgiveness and salvation. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Galatians chapter 2. Um, thank, hopefully you can remember where that is. Remember, Galatians is one of Paul's letters. And um, whenever you're looking at Paul's letters, you kind of go after the Gospels, after the book of Acts, and then you get 13 of Paul's letters. Starts with Romans and ends with um, Philemon. So Galatians is kind of tucked there in the middle. Um, you have Romans and then first and second Corinthians and then Galatians. So Galatians is a, is a short-ish letter of Paul. And it is one that is often known as kind of his, his angry epistle. He writes it um, to the Galatians and starts off kind of by castigating them for abandoning the gospel that he preached to them. And we'll get to that a little bit tonight on what he means by that again. But we are actually in the section in the middle of chapter two of Galatians that is really considered by most uh, Protestant Christians, at least, to be some of the most important text in the entire Bible. So these verses that we're going to study, a lot of people kind of hold up as being some of the most important verses of the New Testament of the entire Bible for us to read and for us to comprehend and for us to meditate on. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Um, and, and it really is a, is a fun text, one that you're probably pretty familiar with, but we'll take our time going through it as usual. So any questions from last time we met? I usually say last week, but it's been three weeks or so. So any questions from the last time we met or anything else that you've been working through that you wanted to ask about? Okay, seeing none, um, hopefully you got the sheet in the email and we look at the questions that we have and let's read Galatians 2 verses 15 through 21. So Galatians 2 verses 15 through 21. Have someone to read that for us. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay, thank you very much. And like I said, we kind of went through um, the first part of this passage, but we're going to back up and, and kind of repeat the first half so we can understand the second half. So the first question then, how does this passage teach the doctrine on which the church stands and falls or falls? So what, what I guess, what is the doctrine on which the church stands and falls is the first question. Justification by faith. Right. Very good. So, so this is what we talked about last time is, oh boy, my marker is not doing well, but that's cool. I have more. Um, actually, thanks to one of you who, who bought me markers, which is totally cool. So justification by grace through faith. And all of this is on account of Jesus Christ, 
Okay. So the central doctrine of the church, and remember, whenever you hear somebody say the word doctrine, doctrine is just really a fancy way of saying teaching, a teaching. So an official teaching of the church is a doctrine. Okay, so the doctrine on which the church stands or falls, so the most important teaching of Christianity is summarized in this phrase, that sinners are justified by God's grace through faith on account of what Jesus Christ did. And when we talk about Jesus Christ and what he did, we're talking about his death and his resurrection. Okay, so this is really, um, this is the central doctrine of Christianity itself is justification by grace through faith because of what Jesus has done. Okay. And that's, that then forms um, really the central teaching of when you read Paul's writing. So when you read the letters from, from Romans through Philemon, this is really what you're reading Paul talking about. Um, this is how he talks about Christianity and the central teaching of Jesus and, and the both actually both old and new Testament. It's all summarized in this phrase. Okay. Now, just to kind of show you how this all works in the Bible, John, the gospel of John kind of has a little bit of a different idea. So if you go to the, the end of the gospel of John, so go to John 20, John 20 verse 31, which you guys know, I've said it many times. You probably know it by heart by now. But John 20, verse 31. This is just to kind of give you the way the New Testament kind of works together. When you read Paul and John, you're going to get different phrases, but saying the same thing. So John 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Okay, so you see that? So, so believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life, okay? So this is kind of the same thing, is, is that you may have life is kind of this idea of justification, right? We're, we stand before a holy God, our sins are forgiven, so we're not punished with death for our sins, but instead we get life. And how do we do that? Do we do that by good works or earning God's favor? No, we do it by believing, right? By believing. So that's the grace and faith idea. And what, what do we believe? What's the object of our faith? What accomplishes all of this, right? Who gives us life? What is the grace of God? It actually is the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is the same thing as what Paul is saying on account of Jesus Christ, right? So this is... This is really the central teaching of the entire Bible, that sinners, you and me, as, as humans who are born in sin and continue to sin, we are saved by God's action in Jesus Christ. And that action in Jesus Christ, death and resurrection to save us, is given to us as a gift by God's grace. And the means through which it is given to us is, is through faith. Okay, so we actually receive God's work of Christ on the, the cross and in his empty tomb. We receive that as a gift from God through our faith. And so all of our salvation then is on account of Jesus Christ, right? So this is the doctrine on which the church stands and falls. And, and for us as Christians, then this is really how we measure whether or not what someone is teaching us is correct. Mm -hmm. So we say, when, we're, when someone's talking to us about God, you say, okay, now how do I know if this person is talking to me about, first of all, the, the real God? There, there are many gods and many lords in this world, right? I mean, there are many people who will talk about a God or, or a divine being or something. And so you say, well, I, I believe in God, but which God are you talking about? Well, for what we're talking about is the God who's, you know, first of all, is incarnate in Jesus Christ. And if we want to talk about God the Father, we talk about the God, God the Father is one who sent Jesus Christ, right? You want to talk about God the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit who, who points us to Jesus Christ. So the first thing I want to talk about is, is this idea of the most important teaching of the Christian church, the most important teaching of scripture 
is is tied up into when we're talking about God, we're talking about the God who is in Jesus Christ, not a different God. So if there is a God who isn't either, you know, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus himself, or the Holy Spirit appoints us to Jesus, that's not the God we're talking about, first of all. Okay. So that's part of it. And then when you talk about, you know, how how are sinners, how are sinners saved by God? Now that now is the next question is okay, if we got God straight, he's the one who, who is in Jesus Christ. Then the question is, how are what are people's relationship to God? And and speaking of from scripture, humans are sinners, right? We are we are born in original sin, and then we live in what we call actual sin, meaning that we act we actively sin in our lives. And so our standing before God is as sinners. And and the punishment of that is that we deserve death. Okay. So this is not good. I don't know if you guys have noticed lately, but death bad, right? <laughs> death not good. So so death bad. And and before a holy God, death is not only, you know, you're gonna die and rot in the grave. But there's actually, it gets worse. There's actually an eternal component to death. This death is actually an eternal condition. And we actually will end up separated from God because of our sin. And so the question is, what? how do we get out of our condition? What do we do to, and, and the, the way that we most will talk about this is to be saved. What do we do to be saved? And the answer is, you don't do nothing right? So justification by grace through faith because of what Jesus does say, says we don't, we don't say that sinners must do something in order to get God to love us or to be saved or get our condition. But what we're saying is that all the action that results in salvation and forgiveness is something that God has done of his own will, of his own desire, right? through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. And even the faith that we have to believe this is actually a gift from God to us. And so sinners are forgiven then because of God's grace, because of that grace given to us that we believe it in faith and we trust in the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross. That's what that changes a sinner into you know a child of God. That's what justification is all about. So when we hear someone talking about us and God, we want to listen to say, is the conversation driving me to trust in God's action in Christ? Because that's Christianity. That's the point of it all. Okay. So any and that's that's a ton, but any questions so far? Any thoughts? Kev, I don't understand this uh, verse 15 where he says ourselves are Jews. And you said that's Peter and Paul by birth uh -huh. and not Gentile sinners. He doesn't right. say that the Jews are sinners. It's almost sounds, it feels to me like a put down to the it Gentile. Is. It absolutely is. Yeah. So, so this is exactly right. Is that Paul is saying that, that um, people will say, well, those Gentiles, they're sinners. They're born outside of the covenant right? And so us Jews were born into the covenant. So we're not like those bad Gentiles over there. And what Paul is saying is justification by grace through faith puts us all on equal footing. If you're going to stand up and say, well, I'm a Jew and those Gentile sinners, Paul's saying, well, we're Jews. We're not Gentile sinners. And yet we're all saved the same way. So, so Paul is actually using the, the language of the day, which was meant as an insult. And he's actually saying, we're, we're exactly the same here. This is exactly the same, right? So, so the Gentile sinners is what, is what Jews would commonly say about Gentiles. And Paul is saying, call them what you want. We're all saved the same, okay? He's, he's actually saying to Peter, there, there's no advantage in being a Jew because before God, we still need his action to save us. Does that make sense? And then he's going to bring this back into verse 17, right? Where he says, and how does the ESV have it? So in, in 17, he kind of goes back to what you're, you're highlighting in verse 15, 
where he says, but if our endeavor um, to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, see? Then, then what am I saying about Christ? Is he a servant of sin? So there he brings himself into the same equation of the Gentiles. And he says, if, if, all, if in all of this, we happen to also be sinners, and so we are actually end up being exact same condition as the Gentile as the Gentiles. Well, what do we do? How are we saved? Is, is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. He said, so, so what he's doing is, as, as you notice, he calls, he calls out the Gentiles as being sinners, talks about justification by grace through faith, and then says, but if, if I go back and examine myself in terms of the law, I find out that I too am a sinner right? The law does not allow a Jew to escape the, the role of being a sinner or the accusation of being a sinner. So then he says, if, if this all comes about, and yet I run back to the law to define my relationship to God, then I too am found to be a sinner. And then he asks the rhetorical question, is then Christ a servant of sin? Well, certainly not, okay? So, so that, that's exactly right. So he starts it off in 15, explains it in 16, and returns to the same phrase again in 17, but applies it to himself. Paul as a Jew. Okay. Yeah. It's a little rhetorically strange, but that's kind of how Paul does stuff. Good question. Dr. Pursuant to that question, I actually heard a really remarkable comment made in a sermon uh, in the last couple of days. It was by a seminarian, so you can never be too sure, but it was a really interesting, really interesting comment, which was, I mean, I mean, you know, Christ uh, talks about in the gospel, uh, you know, if you say, well, well, we're sons of Abraham, you know, I say to you, God could raise up from the rocks more sons for Abraham. So, you know, big deal. But the um, kind, of, kind of the thrust of the idea was that um, for, for the Pharisees and for those who sort of looked to their obedience of the law, um, for, even for those people, too, there is a conversion process that's sort of needed. So like in, you know, in, in what you're saying, where there's not really a difference between Jew or, or Gentile here, um, for, for, a, for a certain subset of, of Judaism at that time, well, they thought, well, we're set, you know, we've, we've got it. But in a way, there is also a conversion needed from Jewish, you know, observers of the law, experts of law, those kinds of things, in very much the same way that Gentiles would, would need a conversion. Yeah, yeah. And so this is, this is part of the, um, the offense of the gospel is when is when certain Jews think they don't need to go through any conversion, they're set, and and yet they're the ones that are called out the most, and even um, called to repentance more than others. And they're kind of like, we don't need repentance. We're the ones teaching repentance. And when John the Baptist and Jesus actually call them out and say, actually, you guys are the ones that are outside the kingdom of God, it that's that's just out of bounds, right? They they don't even know what to do with that. That doesn't make any sense. So this is, this is really where the, the, the playing field is just leveled. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing in any human that merits righteousness with God. There's nothing in anybody. So every human is on the same level playing field and we are sinners and God is holy. And there's nothing that any human can do to change that, save the one man, Jesus Christ, who is the mediator between God and man, right? First Timothy chapter two. And, and you have to think, I mean, there were, there were accounts of people in the gospel who, you know, more or less right away recognized Christ as a savior. But I sometimes think about the fact that that is a major gear shift to be a messianic people and then to suddenly be like, whoa, here he is. Wow, that changes my entire belief and practice and, and reckoning of everything. Yeah, and, and even what they were hoping for. So some of the some of the struggle that we read in the, in the gospels with people accepting Jesus as Messiah. Remember, a lot of people are happy to believe that he's a prophet or someone sent from God, but to to make him Messiah kind of means they have to give up some of their hopes, which was really the con the reconstitution of Israel as a political nation and the powers therein. So a lot of the messianic struggles with Jesus is that in order for him to be the Messiah, they kind of have to stop waiting for a better one, if that's if that's a proper way to say it. Um, that gets frustrating to them, and they're kind of like, "Yeah, you're great, and we're really impressed by the miracles, but 
we really need a Messiah who's going to get rid of these Romans and is going to, and, and don't forget, we, we often say that, you know, they're expecting a Messianic King or something like that to get rid of the Romans. But, but the other side is, is also to call back the other 10 tribes who have never returned from exile. Right. And so they're kind of wondering if Jesus is going to, re, is he going to restore this, this kingdom of Israel that, that David had built and restore the borders, but also restore the unity of the 12 tribes united under the one temple worship and the one God that was destroyed after Solomon and then further destroyed in exile. And they never returned, right? The two tribes returned to Judah after in 516, but the other 10 tribes have never returned. They're in, they're, they're in the dispersion. And so you even hear this in, the, in John's gospel when Jesus says, I'm going to go and you can't go where I'm going. They're like, is he going to go to the dispersion? Is he going to call them out of the, right? Is he going to go to the diaspora? And so that, that's also part of the struggle is when they're waiting for a Messiah, they're kind of wondering if he's going to bring, be a literally a reconstitution of David's kingdom. And when that becomes obvious, that's not what he's doing. A lot of people are like, nope, you, I, I don't want you to be the Messiah. So it was, yeah, it's a huge shift, huge. Okay. And, and Paul's part of that. I don't know if you're ready to move on to question two, but I kind of wanted to stay on question one for just a minute, if you don't mind, uh, just because as I, as, as, since I had read it, I was sort of trying to pay a lot more attention to the words. And there were some interesting, in this passage, I wonder if we could take a minute looking at a couple of the turns of Fraser, because I found some of the syntax kind of really remarkable and some of it really kind of difficult. And one of them that I that I really liked here, and you were just talking about the verse 15 and then verse 17, but, but I found verse 18 to be really interesting. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, which seems to me that what is being said there is that hypothetically, if I have, if I've done something wrong, but you know, cause after you've done something wrong, you want to do what you want to make up for it. Typically, you know, you want to try and make things better. And it seems to me that here, what he's saying is let's say I rebuild the thing. I mean, he doesn't say if I strive or if I, but let's say I successfully make amends for a wrong that I've done. I still have proven myself to have done the wrong in the first place, you know, and it reminds me of something that C.S. Lewis talked about in his book, The Great Divorce. Like if you stitch a bad stitch, he uses a metaphor of stitching. And he says, if you stitch a bad stitch, no amount of stitching over the top of it is going to fix that bad stitch. You would have to be able to work your way backward and undo that stitch. And of course, since we temporal humans can only move forward, you know, we can't do that. And I, I found that verse 18 to be really profound because I, even if somebody fixes something perfectly. Like, let's say hypothetically, somebody could fix a wrong by building it back up. It still wouldn't go back in time and undo the wrong. And I found that to be really interesting. And I don't know if I'm reading too much into that particular verse, but I find that to be remarkable. Yeah, it, it, that's very, that's very much. And that's very nice. Um, that's very much what he's saying. Um, I think, I think really in the context of Galatians, what he's saying is there are some people who are saying, yeah, Jesus is nice. But then after Jesus, you still have to keep the law in order to be saved. And what Paul is saying is, okay, so I'm going to rebuild the law now after Christ and still try to obey the law after I've got Christ. So, so that which I've torn down, I'm going to rebuild. But all the law will ever do is tell me that I'm a sinner. So now where am I? I haven't gotten anywhere. I haven't actually built anything. Like you said, I haven't actually covered up my transgression i've just i've maybe jesus has done something but but i'm still a sinner i don't care what happens i'm still a sinner and so paul is is kind of reminding the galatians that if if we say well we're saved by grace through faith in jesus christ and now you have to keep the law either to retain god's favor or to or to get the fullness of his favor which by the way is a very popular teaching in christianity then what paul is saying is i'm actually I'm building up what I tore down and I'm simply at the end reproving that I'm a sinner. That's all I'm doing. I'm, I'm not actually getting anywhere in this. And, and that's why verse 20 or 19 and 20 then move on. Right. And he, and he talks about this and he says, but I'm trying to remember the ESV for through the law, I died to the law so that I may live to God. So instead of the law building us up and saying, you know, the law is going to show me righteousness because I've, been able to live up to it or something the law is going to break us down it's going to tear us down and it's it's christ himself that actually is what we're building on and built in so what paul is really getting at is that there are there are many christians even who will teach 
you know, what are your race? Someone said I need a bigger board and I just, you know, that's probably true, but I just write bigger. That wouldn't help. Um, but, but a lot of people say what you need is Jesus and then you need to keep the law. And Paul says, but you don't, don't you understand that, that all that does is that gets me back to the law. And, and whenever I'm back in the law, I'm now back to being a sinner, right? So, so as, as long as the law is in the picture, the result is that I'm always a sinner. And, and what, what we need is actually simply to be in Christ. And the law does not play into this equation. It, because the law will always and only condemn me as a sinner. And so I'm not going to go back and rebuild this. I'm going to simply be crucified with Christ. And the life I live in this body, I now live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, right? Because if, if the law could save me, then Christ died for nothing. So, so what he's saying in 17 and 18 is when you get to this identification of a sin and rebuilding the law saying, okay, now that I'm in Christ, I have to live according to the law in order to retain God's love or to truly be saved or something like that. Then what he's saying is you is you just end up back in the game of being a sinner. And that's not actually going to save you that it, it really is Christ alone. Okay. And so, um, Christ alone is how we are saved. It also, now that we are our Christians are the children of God. It's always still and only Christ alone that determines that relationship. And I think that's what he's saying in, in verse 19, where he, it seems like, and I've been like looking at just those, cause it seems like a really complicated little syntax there. And I'm like, what is he even saying? But it seems like that's where he makes the switch over and says, through the law, I died to the law, meaning that he's sort of given, you know, in, as in, he says in verse 17 and 18, he's kind of given you, what can you do? I mean, he sort of laid out the problem you can't, you can't do that. Uh, and so he says, well, I guess I'm a sinner. I guess I'm dead to the law, you know, right, right. so that I might live to God through Christ. And then verse 20, I have been crucified right. with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so that's kind of the thrust of the passage. That's right. It's, it's moving in that direction. Um, it is a little convoluted and complicated, but, but again, that's kind of the way Paul writes. I have a it's, quick question, Kevin. Yeah, go ahead. Um, just really quick, just because we might have some new people listening, you had said the law will only and always condemn. Um, I'm wondering if that's, we're not talking about third use here um, of the law that might were, but that might trigger some people thinking, oh, we're denying third use. But I think you're talking specifically in this context, as we're talking about the law, as Paul's talking about it here, or was the only added to that always and only just a accidental overstatement? No, I, I actually mean thirties of the law as well. Um, okay, that's kind of actually the point. And, okay, yeah. That, and can you clarify that a little bit? Just so this is. <laughs> so there are there are some people who don't know what we're talking about, and there are others who do, and there are most of us who are think we do, but we're not totally sure. So we will try to work with all of this because I'm kind of somewhere in the middle too. So usually when we talk about um, in a Protestant tradition, when you talk about the law, there are typically three uses of the law. And, and that doesn't mean three ways in which we use the law. What that means is that, that when we hear the law, the Holy Spirit convicts us in three ways or uses the law in three ways. Okay. And the first and second actually get switched back and forth sometimes, but, but typically in, in our, in our parlance, the first use of the law is as a curb it stops you from doing bad things for fear of punishment, okay? And, and this, is, this is easiest for us to understand in terms of the civil law, okay? So you're driving down the highway, you're eager to get home to see your parents, and you know, it's, you're going 85 in, a, in an 80, because you're in Kansas, you're allowed to go as fast as you want. And, and you're cruising along, listening to the radio, singing along, but then up, up ahead, you see a police officer sitting in the middle of the road. And what do you do? You slow down. Why? Not because you love the law. Huh. You're just scared of getting a ticket, right? So you're stopped from doing evil for fear of punishment. That's, that, and that actually is a valid way the law is used in the Bible, is that God will say, don't do this or I will smash you right? You do that, you get smashed. 
That's actually a part of the fear of the law, okay? So that's the first use. The second use of the law, um, it, we talk about it as a mirror. It reveals to us that we are sinful. So it holds up the righteousness of God in the way we're supposed to live. And it makes you look in the mirror and you go, I'm not living up to that. I'm not perfect at that. I'm not, maybe I'm not even good at it. I'm not even trying to do that, right? And so the law will convict us and identify us properly as a sinner, someone who has failed to live according to the will of God. Okay. Can I tell completely? Can I tell a quick story? Absolutely. Okay. When I was like nine in Australia, and <laughs> when you said something about like it will crush you or something like that, <laughs> we had this guide who um, we went to the sand dunes and we were riding on these bikes or something. And he gave this intro speech and he would always say, do not do something or it will roll over and squash you. <laughs> yeah, that's, see, that's that's exactly right. Don't yeah. do this or this will happen. Yeah. That's exactly that was, right. That image came to mind and we cracked yeah. about that. And we, had him, like, we had him do it again when he came over to eat. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. It's <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. So then... Um, so then what Peter was bringing up was there also is a third use of the law, which is the guide. And in this use of the law, we are instructed on how God desires for us to live. So the God, the guide reveals to us God's will for how we should live or ought to live, right? How we should live. Okay, now here's the thing you have to remember about this. You don't decide which is which. Your pastor doesn't decide which is which. He, you don't think, okay, I'm now going to tell someone the second use of the law. You don't decide, I'm now going to teach someone within the third use of the law. So if I say um, Christians don't swear. And I intend that to encourage you all to clean up your language. I'm not saying anybody's going to hell. I'm just saying, you know, from, from Paul in Ephesians chapter four, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Let there be no coarse, coarse joking or foolish talk, right? I just say Christians don't swear. The second commandment, that's just something Christians don't do. And somebody hears that and goes, I'm a, I, I swear, does that mean I'm not a Christian? And then someone else hears that and goes, so you're saying if I do swear, God's going to send me to hell. So now the same statement, which I intended as third use, is actually impacting people as second use and first use. See, we don't control how the law is used. We simply say, this, these are the ways that the law is used as, as the word encounters our lives. So, so the issue that Peter was bringing up is some people say in the third use of the law, and, and, and we, in our Lutheran confessions, we, we acknowledge this existence of the third use of the law. So that's good and proper. Um, but I said the law only and always accuses right there's a lot of use in there or something i don't know something a lot always and only accuses he said wait a minute what about the third use of the law well here's the thing even in the preaching of the third use of the law the effect of the law is not going to be to show me how righteous i am but it's going to be to remind me that even in the desire to live according to God's will, there's always going to be an aspect in which I must acknowledge that I don't do it. And even if I did, it would not earn me God's favor. Okay. So the, yes, the law only and always accuses. That doesn't exclude it from teaching me how I should live. But, but even in um, the desire to live according to the will of God, I am going to be, at some point in that exposed to the reality that I fail and that is going to end up accusing me.
Okay. I have well, found that uh, a good metaphor for that is if you've ever done something with the best of intentions to help somebody and then they took it the wrong way or you said something and somebody took offense at it. Uh, in, in a way, I think that also kind of speaks to that idea of third use still can be like, oh, I, I, I did my best, you know, why are right. you mad at me or what have you? Or, or another way to think about it is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian doing good deeds. And I, and I like to, to use a, a, a completely out there example of of a, of a Christian and a non-Christian donating to an orphanage. And the non-Christian gives a million dollars, but does not believe in Christ. And God does not smile on that donation of a, of a million dollars because of what we were talking about in, in verse 18 here, where, you know, even if you think you can make up some good thing to, you know, to smooth over, you know, the fact that you're a sinner, it doesn't do it for you. But a Christian who maybe gives a, a stingy dollar to the same orphanage, God smiles on that dollar with more favor than the non-Christian's million dollars because that person is a believer in Christ and an adopted son into his kingdom. Yeah, yeah. And, and so so my point point. being that my point being that the third use would still say you didn't get you didn't do your right. very best there, mm-hmm. and it convicts you. But for the for the righteousness of Christ, your yes. bad bad contribution to your stingy one dollar is is right. smiling. The righteousness of Christ is counted as 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 good. That's right. Somebody else had a question or, or a thought. Yeah, you're saying that the the law in the third use it's a guide, but it's all it it kind of accuses us. How does that relate with how does that relate with Adam and Eve? They were told don't eat from the uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was basically a law. Yeah, it was. And, That's exactly right. And this so, is part with sin in the world. Right. So, so we were born, so this we were born is, with the law. So this is the way that this the law uh, that uh, that accuses that um I'm sorry, not accuses. This is the way the law is heard by sinners. Okay. Now when we exist after the eschaton we will also have the law of god because it is god's will but we won't hear it as sinners we'll hear it as people who are living a totally in accordance with it so it's just like adam and eve before the fall okay. they they weren't accused of sin they heard it simply as a revelation of god's will and they rejoiced in it they they actually rejoiced in the ability to so eat just by the giving the law that does not make you a sinner Right. Or it's it, it's it, simply it, because it, it, we're sinners that the law affects us this way. Okay. So yeah, the law is holy, righteous, and good in and of itself. It's not the law that's bad. It's our it's our sin that that affects it this way. And, okay? and you know, like you mentioned, well, I think it's the way it's written, like the Ten Commandments. You say those are the ways we sh- we should live, but really, when you look at it, those are the ways we shouldn't live. The way it's written, you know, don't well, kill, yeah, don't. So, so should includes don't do things, right? We're doing. Yeah. So so I like to say that it's it's simply, and I I think this for all three uses is that we simply say the law according, and this is what's in the formula of Concord as well, is a law is simply a statement of God's will. That's what it is, and and what we find is whenever we hear God's will, there's at least part of it's going to identify the fact that I'm not living up to God. I'm not living according to God's will. I'm usually living according to my will. And that's that's then gonna bring you back to the second use. Okay. To remind me that I'm a sinner. Does that make sense? Any other questions on that? Go ahead and ask. I have a question that's kind of not quite onto this. Uh, but it talks about in Philippians where uh, Paul goes through all the oops, all the things that he has accounted to him yeah. and uh, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't but then he goes on to say that he, he didn't aren't being under the law doesn't guarantee you anything. That's right. Even if you're blameless. So, so Philippians chapter three is what she's, Susan is talking about where, where Paul literally says, if you want to start boasting in the flesh, I win. I mean, there's just not in a contest here, right? You guys want to start boasting in the flesh? Well, here's the deal. I, I'm of the people of Israel. I'm, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, the same tribe that the first king went, came from, who's, by the way, his name was Saul. My name is Saul, okay? So I win. Um, circumcision, circumcision the eighth day, right? You talk about Judaism, Pharisee. I win, right? Under the law, righteous. I win. Any competition that comes to the flesh, any competition that comes to religious zealousy, I win. And he says, but all of that is absolutely nothing. 
nothing. It means nothing. The only thing that matters is Christ. And so what Paul is getting at is that whenever the measure for us before God looks at us, the answer is going to be that it's rubbish. It's just nothing. It doesn't count. But what does count is what God has done to reconcile us to himself. Does that make sense? And and I know I know it's hard for Lutheran sometimes to read Paul saying yeah. under the law he's blameless. But remember, that was the point of the of the whole um, agenda of the Pharisees was to create enough laws that you could actually never break the Ten Commandments. And this is kind of what, what Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where So the Pharisees had actually developed a system of laws where they could say, according to the Pharisaic laws, they achieved blamelessness, okay? And Paul's saying, but that doesn't actually do anything. That's not really ever going to get us anywhere. So what he says in Philippians 3, that, that's all, I count that all as nothing compared to knowing Christ. And then the hope is in his resurrection. Okay, good, good point. Yeah, Philippians 3 is just a fantastic chapter. Very good. Any other questions or thoughts on this? I feel as though we're still on number one. Is that right? I, I think if I if I understand it, this this section that we've that we've to answer question one, I think it lays out pretty much that it, it does a couple of things. It says one, so the, the, the question was the, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. And it pretty much establishes that that every, everybody is basically a sinner. No one really has a claim to righteousness under the law. Um, that, um, let's see, I'm trying to see what, what else it says here. Uh, and then it gets into the stuff about being crucified with Christ, which is further on in the, in the questions here. Um, but, but I think it, it sort of lays out both the fact that you can't win under the law and that you, you do win through, uh, through faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, I think is probably yes. the answer to the question. And, and one thing I, as, as we transition into to, to the next questions, um, and I just want to say this and then we're going to move on. You don't want to win under the law. Not only can't you, you don't want to. Sometimes we have the idea that if I can keep the law, that would work, but I can't. So I'll try Jesus. No, you, you don't want to win under the law. It's just not where it, it just isn't the right thing to look to. Okay. So keep that in mind as we go forward. So number two, if we spend 45 minutes in each question, we won't quite get through number two. <laughs> what does it mean to be crucified with Christ? So look at verse 20. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Go ahead. Means we're one with Christ. Okay, good. There's something about us that has been united to Christ. But... But it's not in the resurrection. What Paul doesn't say, I've been resurrected with Christ. What does he say? It's in the death. It's in dying to the law. Christ, Christ died for everybody under the law, and we died with him. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. Nobody wants to be associated with a crucified dude. As a matter of fact, that was the point of crucifixion, is you don't want to be like him. That was the point of crucifixion. It was a public, despicable display of humiliation. You don't want to end up like that guy. That was what the Romans were doing in crucifixion. They put him out in public. They put the charge above his head. And they said, you don't want to end up like him. And Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Look at, um, turn your Bibles to Acts the book of Acts. So we're in Galatians, go back to the beginning of the Bible. If we're in Galatians, go back to 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Romans, and then you're in Acts, okay? So it's like four books in front of where we are. Go to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at, um, well, we're going to look at, it ends in verse 37, I think. I, I should be faster turning there. I can tell you what, exactly what verses we're going to look at. It's, a, it's in Acts 2. And this is Peter's sermon. And um, yeah, so let's look at... Yeah, we can just do 36 and 37 and 38. 
you know, because that's the way the Bible would just keep reading. But but I just want you to see in Peter's sermon. So this is Peter's. This is the first Christian sermon preached publicly. You know, this is the day of Pentecost where the, the Christian church, we call it the birth of the Christian church. The Holy Spirit is given to the apostles and, and they publicly testify to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so this is this is known as the first recorded Christian sermon. And, and just listen to what, what Peter says at the end of the sermon. Okay, he says, let all the house of Israel, that's who he is talking to, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. You killed him, but what does God think about him? God's made him Lord in Christ. This Jesus whom you put on a cross and humiliated and beat, right? This Jesus... That's the one that God has made Lord in Christ. And they say, oh, no. Oh, no. That's not good. If we kill Jesus, but God thinks he's Lord in Christ, we are now against God. What do we do? Right? And that's what they say. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do we do? And listen to Peter's response. Repent and be baptized every one of you into this same Jesus Christ. See, this, this Jesus whom you crucified, he's the means of salvation. Why? Because God has made him Lord in Christ. And so all of a sudden, what happens is when we see this, this being joined together with Jesus on the cross is actually where God saves sinners so if you want to be saved and be a child of god it happens in the cross and what paul is saying is i've been crucified with christ my sins were nailed to that tree my unrighteousness were was put to death with jesus everything that i have done that deserves death was killed with jesus and the death that I die because of my sins, that death was put to death on the cross. Jesus calls me to himself, and I am crucified with him. Okay? And this then is not a cry of humiliation or put on public display as someone who is despicable, but instead, this is where we meet our God. And as Luther likes to say, if you want to find God, look for him where he seems the least likely to be, in a dead man on a cross. And that's where you will find God. Because Jesus on the cross is God for you. That's God forgiving your sins and giving you life. So when we repent, what do we do? We run to the cross. And we say, here are my sins. I, got, I, I only have sins. That's all I've got to bring before you is my sins. And we come and we breathe them before God. And we, we come before the cross of Christ. And we, and we say, I am crucified with Christ. My sins are nailed there on the tree. And therefore, I will now receive by God's grace the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The very righteousness of Jesus will be given to me. And he will take upon himself my sins. Okay, that's what Paul means by crucified with Christ. All right. Now, he, he, he explains this. If you just want to, if you're still in Acts, go to the next book, which is Romans. If you're not, if you're not, if you went back to Galatians and go back forward three books, which is also Romans. It's fun how it works. So go to Romans chapter one, verse 16 and 17 this is this is kind of the, a summary of what we're talking about as well so romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 which you guys know in your hearts or in your heads or wherever you know stuff i people know stuff in their heart i don't know what that means i don't know if they're good but <laughs> romans 1 16 and 17 says this for i am not ashamed of the gospel remember gospel means good news i am not ashamed of, of this good news 
for it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I was going to point there because that's where I said believe, but we're back to justification by grace through, through faith, right? Who believes. But listen to this. First for the Jew and then for the Greek. There you go in verse uh, 15 and 17 there and um, in Galatians 2. So for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And this is by faith. Okay, so this good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ, that's where you see the righteousness of God. It's in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul is saying, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been joined with him in this death and resurrection. I have been nailed to the cross with him. My sins have been crucified. And then, therefore, I share in the resurrection with him, right? And, and I always say this, and, and don't forget it, that there is no resurrection without a death. And for all those who are in Christ now, there is no death that doesn't end with resurrection. Okay, that's what we get in Christ. So now you're in Romans, you're in Romans 1. Go to Romans 6. Okay, because now he's going to say, well, you know, he talks about Romans 3 is this whole thing of justification. Romans 4 is this whole thing about Abraham and David were also justified by faith, which we'll get to it in Galatians 3. Right. Same thing there. But then in Romans chapter six, Romans five is about peace with God and first Adam and second Adam, all that good stuff. That's good stuff. You should read it. But look at verse or chapter six, Romans chapter six. Verse three, he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Right? So how are we joined to Christ? How have I been crucified with Christ? What does Paul say? Through baptism. Sound familiar? Acts chapter 2. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you're joined to this action of God in Christ Jesus through faith, through baptism, and you're actually joined to Christ. You receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life by being joined to him in his cross, right? And so this is the thrust of what Paul is getting at in, in Galatians 2.20. And so if you read further in, in, in Romans chapter 6, it says, now if we join to him in his death, we're also joined to him in his resurrection, okay? Because whoever is in Christ, if there's a death, there's always a resurrection. So that's, that's kind of how that works as far as Galatians 2.20 goes. Any questions or thoughts on that? Actually, I just wanted to appreciate the fact that you've just sort of triangulated or, or, or quadrangulated by the, you know, by that passage in Galatians and Acts and Romans, uh, kind of the idea that the word of promise, the gospel is joined to that act of baptism, you know, in, in the material element of the water of baptism. And I, I feel like, I don't know, I don't know if anybody else noticed that, but it just seemed to me that as you went from point to point to point, that that that's kind of where we ended up. That's exactly right. It's, it's cross, it's baptism, it's promise, it's all one you just got to keep in that reality that's right that's exactly right keep joining them together that's exactly having right. the great thing about that too is is baptism is god's work and his promise and it gives us comfort regardless of how my sinful nature makes me feel that since god did it i can have faith and confidence in it that's ex that's very well said and and i think you know that's i hope in all of this what you have heard is is really just the reality that we exist um, in the state of God's grace and that, you know, it doesn't really, um, it always sounds stupid when you say it doesn't matter. It, it matters a lot, but, but when it comes to our peace and our joy on a daily basis, we don't measure ourselves and say, could God possibly love me or, you know, am I living up to this so that God will love me? No, you can know at every second that God loves you, that you are his child, and that nothing can change that because it's not contingent on any performance that you that you have to live up to. It's not, it's not contingent on anything that happens around you. God's love is solidified for you in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and given to you by faith through baptism, through hearing of the word, through the Lord's Supper. It's something that happens for you and can never be changed. And that's why this is the doctrine in which the church stands and falls, because all of this teaching, 
being crucified with Christ, God's love, justification by grace through faith. It's all saying that you, you are a child of God because of what God has done. And he will never withdraw his love or his promises from you. They are sure and they are certain in Jesus Christ. That's a promise, promise made, promise kept for all of eternity. And that's who we are. I mean, that's that's the joy of being in Christ is that we, every second of every day, we live in that reality of being loved. And then what does that do? And, and we'll get there in Galatians 2.20, that empowers us to live lives in Christ. And so we get back to the third use of the law. What do we do? We live according to God's will, which is love God and love neighbor. Why? Because we've been loved, right? So, so that's exactly right. And that's, that's just the wonderful good news of all of this. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions? We got like five more questions to get to. I don't know how that's going to happen. I all already right, deleted quick. all the other questions from the YouTube description. So you're good, Kevin. Oh, good. Thanks. <laughs> I don't know why you ever got past chapter number one. You should have looked and seen that. All right. Number three. <laughs> three. So what does it mean to live? What does he say? I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer, I have the NIV in my head. I think that's the problem. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay. So what does it mean to live? I think there's sort of a dual meaning there. I mean, he talks about the life I now live in the flesh. So he's talking about living here on this mortal coil, but I think that we also have to understand it as eternal life as well through Christ. Yeah. And, and I think that's good. And I think the other thing I want you guys to, anybody else have an idea? Go ahead. Shout it out there. I don't want to cut you off. Kevin. Yep. To, to live is Christ to die is gain. Good. You're, you're just all over Philippians tonight. Are you, are you reading Philippians or something? But but Philippians 1.21, that's exactly right. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's exactly right. Um, good, good. Anything else? I've just thought of being in Christ. Yeah. And, and I think this is something that we want to also talk about is that Christianity is not the absence of something. It's actually the, the gift of something. A lot of people think that Christianity is simply getting rid of my sin, but it really isn't. It really is receiving from God grace and life and forgiveness and peace. See, we're, we're not just living our lives trying to get rid of naughtiness and trying to get rid of bad things. That's, that's certainly part of our repentance and our forgiveness. But, but even more than that, it's living. And, and what we find is that real living is living in Christ. I mean, you really want to live? Do what God wants. You say, well, I, I can't do that. Say, that's exactly right. In Christ, you are a child of God and you're living in the grace and mercy of God. And that's really the fullness of life. Just, just listen to this for a second and believe me, just for a second. In the beginning, we all know the story, right? God created the heavens and the earth. We got six days and all that kind of stuff. And God said, hey, here's an idea. Let us make man in our own image. In the image of God, he made a male and female, he created them, right? And then what does it say in Colossians? Is that Christ is the image of God. And so we were actually created to live in Christ. And when we live in Christ, when we live in the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life, when we live in fellowship with God and love for one another, we are living as we were created to be. We are living as in the fullness of our humanity when we live in Christ Jesus. And so I, I encourage you to not see Christianity as the absence of things, but really as living in the fullness of who God has created you to be and in the fullness of his love. I mean, every day, that's the richness of life in Christ. He doesn't say, I've been crucified with Christ, and now I'm just kind of laying here waiting for the second coming. No, he says, I've been crucified with Christ, and, but, and I no longer live, but the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's really who we are. We live our lives every day in the reality of God's love in Christ. And yeah, there's nothing better than that. Nothing. That, that's it. That's the best there is. Any, our time is up, unfortunately. Um, any, any questions or thoughts before we go?
Um, as always, I'm able to hang out for a little bit after this. If you, if anyone wants to stay on and ask a question or talk about something I said or something else that you've been dealing with in life, you're welcome to stick, stick around with me. I can hang out. Um, I usually turn off the YouTube feed so it's not live, but other than that, we can stick around. Um, so please do that if you want to. Otherwise, I'll pray. But before I do, I just want to reiterate to all y'all, um, I missed you when we were gone. I really did. <laughs> And I'm so glad to see you all back on Tuesdays. We'll keep doing this um, as long as we can. So um, it's good to see you all and let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you are a God who loves for, for no merit or, or anything that we have done, but simply out of your fatherly divine goodness and mercy for us, you love us in our savior, Jesus Christ. You've forgiven our sins. You've conquered death in the grave. You've given us our faith. You've called us into the fellowship of believers and you promise us eternal life. And for that, we are thankful. Teach us to live in that joy and that peace and that forgiveness and teach us to love. Bless us now this night. Grant us your Holy Spirit that we might rest in the peace of your love. In Jesus' name.